0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, the host for the channel. Today we'll be talking to Emma Maris about her new book, Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. Welcome to the show, Emma. It's great to be here. Well, the book has certainly got a lot going on, but first, let's talk about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: So I'm an environmental writer. I'm a freelancer. I started my career working for the scientific journal Nature in their Washington, D.C. office, reporting about sort of the, the, the world of science and also scientific discoveries. And my particular beat included conservation biology and ecology. Uh, So after I went freelance, I kept going with those fields because I'd become really interested in the things they were finding out, but also in the sort of values that were woven into those fields in a different way than in most scientific fields. And a lot of my work um, since then has been about the question of the values at the center of conservation. And this book is no different, except here I also talk about animal rights and animal welfare. So I sort of expand my focus a bit.
1: So let's talk about that expansion. Kind of what, what brought you to this very place in time to start asking these questions?
2: So I had been covering conservation for a long time. And around 2013, I moved to a new town, Klamath Falls in Southern Oregon. And yeah, of course, the first thing I did was look around and, and try to see what the stories were that I could cover here. And one of the things that was very hot at the time was wolf reintroduction. Now, wolves were reintroduced into Idaho and Yellowstone in the 90s, but it took them a little longer to get to Oregon. So in 2013, it was, there were still fewer than 100 wolves in the state, and they were just establishing themselves, and there were a lot of discussions about how we should live with them. So I became interested in that story, and there was, in fact, a, a kind of a famous wolf that lived really close to our town, um, a wolf that had... Uh, taken this, it had a radio collar, and it had taken this really long journey from the northeastern part of the state all the way down to California. It was like a thousand miles. So this is something wolves normally do. They disperse when they hit puberty to go find a mate and start their own family. Um, not unlike a lot of humans do. Um, but, um, uh, in this case, a thousand miles was longer than researchers thought wolves went. It they didn't know they just went that far. So this wolf became kind of OR7 as the scientists know him became kind of a celebrity. Um, so I was writing about OR7 and I kept having this nagging feeling that there was something weird about describing this wolf as a wild animal because we knew exactly where he was at all times back then. Um, he had a name. He he. We had a sample of his blood. We had, I think, his DNA on file. We could tell who he was related to and who he wasn't related to. So if we found poop in the woods, we could tell if it was his or not. And when he started getting interested in livestock, there was hazing. There was, uh, you know, and the wolf plan suggested that if he got two hundred livestock, he would just be killed. And ultimately, that last one in particular really gave me pause. That if we could kill this wolf at any time you know, that we, if it was living just thanks to our grace, so then how was that a really wild animal? And how was that not just sort of for a free-ranging communal pet? Um, I know that sounds a little dismissive and I don't mean it to be, but I was struggling with what wild meant in this context. And so that really started me off on the project that ended up being this book. Now the book has quite a few wolves in it, but it has all sorts of other animals too from all over the world. And the question kind of mutated beyond what is a wild animal to what are our ethical obligations to these animals that we describe as wild, these animals that aren't our pets or aren't our livestock, those animals out there. What are we supposed to do when the world that they are living in has totally been changed by humans and they're all kind of living in the situations that we've placed them in? What does that mean to us in terms of our ethical relationship with them?
1: Yeah, and and the OR seven case was a a great place to start, and we're jumping from rambunctious garden to to wild souls, and as you noted, really trying to answer you're trying to answer this question about the ethical obligation, and and you do a great job unpacking it in so many ways, and and you mentioned and and to not miss the point that you're coming from the place of we've already as humans directly altered so much of their habitat. So now what, what are the rules and the, the norms and the, the morals that go along with interacting with these animals and, and how are they uh, potentially self-contradictory? So let's, yeah. let's dive in. Let's talk about some of these rules. And then you ask some really big questions that kind of get into the, the power dynamics and the justice conversations around kind of whose rules are counting and whose don't, uh, who's got money, who's got power. Uh, how, how does what, what we do... Uh, in terms of these actions we take in the name of of nature, benefit different parties. So let's let's start unpacking some of that briefly as we move
2: forward. Sure, sounds great. So,
1: you the their the very next conversation, right, is is animals as kin, uh, and where where does this storyline historically fall? Are we are we prey? Are we predators to them, or are we, or is there a, a kinship? Can you talk a little about some of the examples you use to really sort that conversation?
2: Yeah, so I wanted to kind of take an overview of how humans have conceptualized their relationship to wild animals in the past and in different places around the world. So I I do that. It's not comprehensive. You could obviously write a whole book or a whole series of books about human relationships to wild animals, um, uh, but I wanted to at least sort of take the readers on a on on a little bit of a highlights tour. Um, if only to sort of bring home this this fundamental point, which is that there is no kind of one way to think about wild animals. So obviously our remote ancestors related to them in a very sort of um, just a bunch of animals out there interacting kind of way. Uh, you know, uh, back, in, back many, many eons ago, we were a prey and we were also predators and, and we were just one animal among many sort of mixing it up out there. And I think it was only pretty recently in our history that we started seeing ourselves as somehow different than these other animals. And there are certainly cultures where human exceptionalism is still not a thing, <laughs> where where humans are still just seen as one animal in this kind of web of prey and predators and, and cooperation and sort of mutual assistance. You know, there's, there's all these relationships you can have. Um... But this idea that humans aren't an animal somehow, uh, did become a powerful one in Western thought. So I talk about that quite a bit, although I also kind of do a little bit of uh, pushing back against that. There are even places within the sort of Western Christian based culture where we, where we do think about individual animals, like they're kind of people with agency. So I have this whole interlude where I talk about this medieval practice of putting animals on trial for crimes. Um, and it's r- ridiculous in some ways, but because the idea that they could be morally or responsible for their actions doesn't seem to to go with what we know about animal cognition and so on now. But at the same time it shows that we the humans at that time really did see these pigs and donkeys and even insects in some cases as actors in the world with agency who could make choices and sometimes made the wrong ones. So it was a really interesting, I mean, that kind of, the the sort of historical and cross-cultural research for this project was so fascinating, so much fun. Um, and I kind of came out of it thinking that human exceptionalism, as in, okay, so as in my last project from Bunctious Garden, which was my first book, there I talk about all of the sort of, I think, errors in thinking that flow from this sort of humans aren't part of nature dichotomy, this human nature dualism. And, and that crops up again here, right? The, the, if we treat animals in a, in a way that flows from the idea that we aren't animals, it often leads to dark and bad places. So, uh, I think the kinship model is, tends to lead us to better relationships with non-humans. And it's, and it's also just scientifically accurate at some level because we're all evolved from the same, uh, common ancestor many millions of years ago. So we are relatives.
1: And you unpack the this kinship uh, with a bunch of different viewpoints and and philosophies that are kind of wrestling with each other. Uh, and you start citing very different uh, and, and different conversations, different people, and getting at these notions of, like you just mentioned, kind of where do we argue for kind of the the morality of of the animal. As well as kind of the sentient being and and one of the places you land is that uh i don't think anyone doubts that animals are sentient and then there there is some some further discussion kind of these these notions of um kind of reason and you you cite a particular book that's kind of talking about essentially we right as humans have have values and and the way we think and and therefore we test We test based on those we look for whether or not animals have the qualities we think measure up to being um, their own their own entity their own reasoning uh, that they that they can argue uh, and things of that nature can you talk about some more of those philosophies that you get into in in that chapter and and some of the people that you highlight like peter singer or ruth harrison
2: yeah, so you know this book is is a, for a popular audience, um, but I you know I try not to I don't dumb it down. I just try to write in a way that everyone can understand. And it is like you say, it's a pop sci- science book, but it's also sort of a pop philosophy book. And I really do dig into these different philosophical approaches to thinking about non-human animals. Um, and so you know, yeah, the reader will get like a little introduction to Singer and his consequentialism, which is this idea that basically we should be looking at the consequences of all of our actions and whether or not they tend to increase the sum total of sort of happiness and pleasure in the world or whether they decrease it and and it's all a big in some ways it's all a kind of a big happiness math problem um and then we have uh Tom Reagan, a very influential guy who was more of a rights perspective it's not it's uh, I kind of tend to think of him as an animal kantian right it's this idea that uh, it isn't that we add up the consequences. It's just that these animals have fundamental rights to be treated well, and we can't break those rights. We can't infringe on those rights. Um, so sometimes you get a different uh, different advice if you have a, conu- a moral conundrum and you go to c- c- kind of think about it through Peter's lens, or Peter Singer's lens, then you would get if you thought about the same conundrum through Tom Reagan's lens. And I talk about other philosophers like Lori Gruen who say that it's actually not so easy. There's not just one simple rule you can apply to every case. Uh, she, she uses the phrase entangled empathy to describe a kind of a more complicated case by case process where you take into account your emotional reaction to the situation as well as the, uh, the consequences. And you also take into account your own relationship with the particular animal in question, which I think is really interesting. And I think actually Lori Gruen's account of how to make ethical decisions, maybe does a better job of, of sticking closely to what we actually in practice do do to make ethical decisions. Uh, you know, the research shows that when we make decisions about what to do in ethical problems, we'd use a lot of our emotional processing to do that as well as our rational processing. So, I mean, maybe Peter Singer himself can do it all with his rational brain, but I think most of us do use our emotions as part of our toolkit And I don't think that's necessarily a drawback. I think our emotions often alert us to important features of these ethical conundrums. Anyway, these are just three. And uh, there's many more, there's a lot of contemporary philosophers that I uh, interviewed for the book, uh, including Claire Palmer, who I think is brilliant. Uh, She's at Texas A&M and uh, I work with the work of Martha Nussbaum, who I also think is really brilliant. Um, So but I, but, but it, for, for listeners who maybe are a little not sure about philosophy, trust me, like I present this stuff in a way where you'll be able to understand it very easily. And the secret to philosophy is it isn't actually that arcane. It's just like a science in that it has its own vocabulary and its own kind of culture. And that can be really intimidating. But once you learn, you know, the kind of, the kind of code words, it's not, it's not, um, it's not hard.
1: I'd agree with your statement it you you give a very old, big overview of what's going on and and it actually is very engaging to to bring us into kind of what are the conversations at play, uh, and, and more so philosophy than than science, but but definitely in science, uh, you have the, the name matters, right? They always referring to like Kantian, right? The name matters because it, it ties you to a particular idea. Um, and so that's important. And once you kind of get that jargon down of kind of who, who are they talking about and what does that mean, uh, it, it flows. And so I think I do, you do a great job there. Now, now to unpack what you started to get into, kind of the, the dichotomy between kind of values and then kind of the objectivity that, that we might want to make decisions or the rationality we want my decisions with, uh, you, you go back to a, another kind of wolf case uh, that's in the state of Washington that, uh, really, I mean, broke my heart in a, in a lot of ways to, to unpack that. And I was in the Pacific Northwest and I probably should have known more about what was happening at the time. Uh, but the, the term genetic integrity shows up, uh, as, as, as a reasoning to take on particular conservation, conservationist motivations. Can you talk a little bit about that case study, uh, and genetic integrity?
2: Sure. So, um this this took place when when wolves were endangered considered endangered across the state of Washington. And there was these two young wolves who were dispersing from their f- birth family as is normal, and they came across a sheep herding dog. And these dogs are usually um their kind of job is to scare off wolves, but in this case for whatever reason the sheep herding dog and the wolves kind of got along. And the wolves, uh, eventually ran off with the dog. The dog left, um, his home and went off with these two female wolves and they f- kind of formed a pack and they were a- on the lamb as it were for months. Um, so this became a kind of a, a, a big deal locally. People were calling the two female wolves, Thelma and Louise and everything, Local wildlife officials were made really nervous by this because they didn't want this dog impregnating either of these wolves because the offspring would be hybrids. They they wouldn't be an endangered species and they wouldn't be a feral dog. They would be something in between. Um, and so you know, it became uh, a a sort of like an existential crisis for the department of the Washington Department of Fish and Game. And they were able to track these, this little pack because one of the wolves had a collar on. And when they found them, one of them was pregnant. And so they, they essentially uh, gave her an abortion and then sterilized her. Um, So what I thought was so interesting about this Case study, and they took the dog back home, and then you know there were there were kind of you can read the book if you want to hear what happened to all three of the canines involved, but um, you know what I thought was really interesting about this as a case study was that there were two kind of notions of wildness opposed to each other here. One is this notion of genetic integrity that the, the genome of these wolves was somehow wild, not domesticated, that it wasn't tainted with dog genes. Therefore it was a wild genome that needed to be, its sort of purity needed to be protected from this hybridization event. But then there's this other notion of wildness, which is that you're wild. You get to do whatever you want. You don't, you don't have people tell you like caging you up or telling you who to mate with or whatever. And in that case, that, notion of wildness as autonomy was completely violated. You know, these, these animals had decided that they were going to be a family and the state of Washington was like, Oh no, you're not. <laughs> so, you know, I, and that got to me too, like at some level, I was annoyed on, I was very annoyed on behalf of these animals that, that their, their choices were not honored So I came to believe over the course of working on this book that that, you know, in my previous book, I talked about how wilderness is mostly a myth, this idea that when white people stepped off the boat, that this was a virgin wilderness in North America is BS, and that it's a harmful myth because it erases indigenous people from history and from agency. And it also makes us obsessed with returning ecosystems to some sort of year zero, some sort of 1491 or 1850 or what have you and that that doesn't that's not no longer it's an increasingly maladaptive goal for restoration anyway because everything is changing right um and here now i was finding a similar thing that that the kind of obsession with with the past or pristineness or wildness was leading to what i thought were uncool outcomes <laughs> outcomes that were not ideal that were not maybe the most ethical now Having said all of that, um, I do understand why the wildlife officials made the decision that they did. They were also working within a lot of bureaucratic restrictions. And there, you know, the laws about endangered species protection and so on that they were working with kind of forced their hand. Um, so I don't I have no I'm not annoyed with them at all. Um, but I do think that it made it sort of solidified in my mind that I think the only kind of wildness that really ethically matters for non-human animals is their autonomy. Not their purity that's 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 a red herring it's it's does this animal get to make its own choices? That's a wild animal
1: and you you touched on two things here, and I was going to drive to the I'm glad you brought up the autonomy that's that's a really important point that you end on that I think needs to get handed off and and hopefully, if the case wasn't made in the last like two minutes, the book will make the case for what you just mentioned in terms of driving for. For wild to become about autonomy and and not just non-human or non non-pure, and the the interesting thing is right you you talk about this idea of genetic integrity, but then and and, and the argument to pre- contain a pure or pristine line for the wolf, but at, at the same time, right you start to wrestle with this notion that human influence is woven into genomes and the lives of species. Yeah. And, and that that's in itself a conundrum, right? We're arguing that we need to maintain that, that we don't want these dogs to the, the wolf and the dog to mate, but how do, how have you seen in your conversations and getting the, the book going people recognize or, or unwilling to recognize for in another case that, that human influence is potentially woven into these genomes and, and the lives of these animals.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, so many of us were brought up with this idea that natural means that human, you know, lack of human influence and that natural is the good that, that we should be pursuing in all of our conservation or environmental action. And that sort of baseline understanding can be really problematic because it tends to lead us to solutions that simply just involve removing the human influence that's always often our go-to solution whenever there's a problem we're like we'll just put it back to the way it used to be we'll just undo whatever humans did um, and I think it's increasingly recognized that 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 human influence on the planet has been massive and pervasive and and also goes further back in time than we used to think you know i think more and more people now have even heard of this, the Pleistocene extinctions and the the concept that humans in, uh, in sort of pre in, you know, prehistorical times probably had a ha- hand in a lot of extinctions that changed ecosystems radically in North America and, and around the world too Australia, New Zealand. Um, uh, the kind of the later a place was discovered by humans, the more profound the fact is, um, so, you know, I think people are slowly coming to absorb this information, but I think it's still the case that often our, our kind of knee-jerk reaction is to try to go backwards or undo what humans have done, and, I th- and, and also to withdraw or remove humans. And I think this is just not the right approach, right? I, I think what we, you know, take, take a think about almost any wild animal has been living in an ecosystem that's been shaped by Pleistocene extinctions by land use change by uh, rising temperatures rising, rising carbon dioxide concentrations that's been bisected by roads the volume has been turned up with noise pollution the lights have been turned up by uh, air po- you know by light pollution everything has changed and and scientists are finding more and more instances of how animals have, genetically changed to adapt to these new conditions. You know, there's behavioral plasticity, which I think is bigger than we expected in terms of, Oh, um, there's noise pollution. So I'm going to change the pitch of my mating song or, Oh, there's a bunch of people here now. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to just go nocturnal. I'm going to change my lifestyle to, to, to go out during the night. So I don't run into as many people. There's a lot of that, that uh, animals do, but then there's also a lot of like genome deep changes. You know, even wolves themselves. I talk in the book about how all those Pleistocene extinctions reshuffled the whole food web, and wolves, which were kind of like a mesopredator predator back in the Pleistocene, they were kind of like a little guy, kind of almost more like what a coyote's role would be now. They they kind of inherited this top predator role that uh, went went vacant when the dire wolves and the saber tooth tigers all got ex- uh, you know extinct. So they are completely genetically, um, you know, their whole
0: Come seek the Royal Caribbean ships registry Bahamas.
1: Yeah, the mega fauna and the hyper carnivore conversation was was something that I really enjoyed wrestling with, and and the ideas that it brings about and the impacts that it has, and 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 the change in 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 the in the way prey are and the and the adaptations to prey uh, were really interesting. And I want to go back to this baseline uh, because I want to emphasize it, or I want you to emphasize it. But you mentioned kind of this notion, and, and it comes back from the idea of wild. But before we move forward, let's go back to the, the conversation, kind of where where we place as as humans this, this notion of the baseline of nature, uh, where that comes from and how it's a fallacy. Can you go back and kind of dig into that a little bit more before sure. we move forward?
2: Yeah, yeah. This is something that, you know, I think – I think that the field is kind of coming around on this, which is really exciting to see. Um, But I do still think that lots of uh, people in the lay, you know, just sort of the general public are uh, these ideas. It's good to to kind of keep talking about this, I think, right? So I think a lot of us grew up with this idea that, um, you know, when Christopher Columbus stepped off the boat, North America and South America were vast wildernesses, lightly populated by a few native tribes who lived in harmony with the nature and basically had no effect on the ecology they just kind of lightly creamed off a few resources this is the basically the received notion that that i was taught as a child and that i think a lot of us were taught and it's just wildly incorrect right north and south america were very densely populated with with like cities and roads and trade networks and and the land management that happened was extensive. It was, you know, you might've heard about Native Americans burning the prairies to keep them a grassland and to keep the game there and to keep, get new, new growth of useful plants. And that is, that's just one example of the kind of thing that was happening coast to coast and all up and down the Americas. And in all other places too, in Australia, in New Zealand. Other places that had been colon- that were eventually colonized, there were also all a lot of land management strategies, and I really enjoy like before COVID when I did more traveling to give lectures. One of my favorite things to do is if I was going to a new place, I would. Tr- dig in and try to learn as much as I could about that pre-contact environmental history. Um, And often, you know, it's hard to find, like it's buried in weird old obscure anthropology journals, but you can find it. Like I went to San Diego to give a lecture and I found out all about how the Native people there had um these big oak gardens and they they would they'd have them in one place and then 100 years later the climate would have changed slightly and they'd move the oak the orchards to a new location where they would do better and they moved prickly pear cactus from inland deserts all the way out to the coast because they were a food resource and they also used them to make fences around their villages which is pretty brilliant because they're all spiky um, and they had these whole grasslands that they had set up um, that were like. And when Spanish explorers got there, they were like, "Oh, it looks, it looks like fields. It looks like agriculture." But they didn't take that last step and say, "Oh, it is fields. It is agriculture. This land is all being managed." They just couldn't believe that these people were capable of doing that. And there were these subtle differences, like the you know the orchards weren't planted in in rows, for example. So they were like, "Oh, look at these oaks! How handy that they all grow right by the village!" <laughs> you know, like they just couldn't see it. Um, so, yeah. So the north and south America, most of the world has been radically changed and managed by humans for thousands of years. That's the baseline. You know, that's that's the truth. And yet we still you know, decide whether a place is natural or not, or, or in good shape or not, or as ecological integrity or not by comparing the way it looks now to the way it looked in some year X. And that year is different in different parts of the world, but it's often very much pegged to when the first white people showed up. Because they saw themselves as the only people on the planet with any real agency. So for the, and made sense that they would see any changes that they made to the landscape as somehow unnatural. Whereas any changes that the native people made to the landscape, they just kind of lumped that in. There's a famous quote where some North American ecologist says that their native changes to the ecosystem were like the changes of beaver or deer. They didn't count. So they're basically saying they're like non-human. So I'm, you know, I think that field is very much wrestling with this right now. I've been doing some, some academic work on this as well, writing about ecological integrity and, and in genetic integrity in the environmental ethics literature, and also getting some of it published in the, in like the restoration and conservation biology literature to try to keep these conversations moving. But there's still lots of policies and stuff that, you know, there's a lot of of state and federal, uh, national level agencies that, that use, measurements of ecological integrity to prioritize where parks should be. And those measurements of ecological integrity, when you unpack them, they're basically counting species and comparing them to what species were in that exact same spot in 1850.
1: (laughs) So I appreciate you bringing back that baseline conversation, taking a segue a little bit, but it's really relevant to the points and arguments you're making about this idea of wild, this idea of natural, and kind of where we decide to make changes and how we adapt or how comfortable we are with change. And I want to bring it back to, to the animal side of thing. And I also want to unpack a little bit, or at least discuss uh, this notion you've been talking about this dichotomy between non-human or, and and human and, and, and natural and, and non-natural, but for those who are listening and, and might be wrestling, this might be new for them. I want to bring up the, the points that you make. So you you make two kind of connecting themes here. One, you say we can we can revel in the non-human without disdaining the human, right? And so that's some of the arguments you've been making is that human influence has happened. Uh, we just discussed it, right? Uh, the original indigenous populations were were making an impact, uh, and it's not necessarily good or bad. They they have an impact. And so you're arguing that it's not going back. It's not pausing. It's not stopping. It's not, it's, 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 we just have to navigate those. Uh, But then at the same time, which is really important, right? You're not, you're not just like ultimately pro humans can do whatever they want. Uh, You talk about that. uh, Rejecting this dichotomy uh, does not mean condoning all human actions because as animals, everything we do is natural Uh, that using natural as a substitute for good is the problem here, not the solution. And that is quoted directly from page 66 of the text. Can you talk a little bit more about how you kind of move from, we have an impact, uh, but that doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want.
2: Yeah. So this is, thank you. Thank you for asking this question, because I think it's one that really does come up in people's minds when they're working through this idea of like, well, if we're not going to try to make it look like it did in the past, then what are we, then is it anything goes? And the answer is no, it is not anything ghost, because there are still lots of other values out there in the natural world that we want to try to protect and preserve beyond this, quote unquote, naturalness or this lack of human influence. Right. There's diversity. There's complexity. There is, you know, just abundance of non-humans so we want uh, our our world to have lots of different species in it and we want all those populations of those not of those other species to be robust and there to be a lot of them and we want them all to be interacting in complicated and interesting ways and we want them to as much as possible to have their own individual autonomy out there in the world so we can try to to do all of those things without falling back on this notion of natural or this or this idea that we have to r- subtract humans from the equation to get there um, you know, I think a lot of people have been reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and this is ultimately her message here, is that the the way to to solve our environmental problems is not to withdraw, it's to have better relationships with the non-human world. So that doesn't mean anything goes, because you're still not allowed to have crappy relationships that are exploitative and destructive, and that ultimately are going to lead to the extinguishment of the non-humans, right? You, you want to have... Me- relationships with the non-human world that benefit, that are mutualistic, right? Rather than just exploitative. So, um, I think that that is a really exciting way to proceed. And I am very excited that people are more and more getting on board with these ideas. So does that mean that environmental history is totally irrelevant when it comes to management? Absolutely not. Does that mean we should never try to make things look like the past? No, it doesn't. There's certainly cases where we might want to say, Hey, you know, there used to be this this, uh, let's say there used to be an, like a, an indigenous oak orchard kind of ecosystem in this area that in the past ecologists thought was just a natural oak grassland kind of deal. And now we realize that it was actually probably a managed system. But like that doesn't mean we can't want to restore that and have that and celebrate that and maybe even start harvesting some of those acorns and eating them again. Um, we can totally look to history. We can totally engage with the traditions of the land. And, and sometimes that might look on on the surface quite a bit, like the kind of old school, let's just put everything back restoration, except we're seeing it in a different way. And we don't have to do the same thing everywhere. In some other places, we might say, okay, so in 1850, there used to be this animal and this plant here, but those animals and those plants are not going to be able to thrive here now because of climate change or because there's a freeway here or whatever. But we can have these other animals, these other plants here, they would do really well and they need some habitat. So let's, let's do that. And ultimately, I am just more interested that that our world's amazing diversity persists into the future than I am that it's all in the "quote unquote" right place.
1: And I think that uh, you you said it perfectly, kind of quoting from the the braiding sweetgrass text, but about the relationship, right? And and it's ultimately you can't have destructive relationships, and that's something that we have to bring to the table and and think about. Uh, our involvement, and and we don't want those in our lives, human to human. And now we got to figure out kind of what does that look like, human to, to non-human, yeah, uh, world. Uh, and and I want to bring out you po- you pointed to kind of like it doesn't mean like doing all this thinking this way doesn't mean there can't be a, a, a you didn't say preference you did say it in your text though uh, a preference for the past right, but that that conversation about like putting things back to like a particular place in time and making it look like that. Can't be a scientific argument necessarily then. You you want people to recognize and at least admit that it's a preference, not just science says that this is better. This is a better environment.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I think there was a phase where ecologists or restorationists would say the correct state of this ecosystem is such and such because that's what it looked like. And there still is that that kind of strain you know you still see these sort of ecological assessments where they say well this is this site is intact this site is degraded those kinds of words sound scientific but they are but they're premised on the idea that the intact system is the superior morally acceptable good system and that's but it's all pegged to a cultural baseline and that wasn't being acknowledged and it was driving me bonkers and that is why i wrote two books about this <laughs> so that it, that we, acknowledging that this is a cultural preference or or a human preference that we want this to look like it did in a certain time, that doesn't mean we can't do it. It just means that we have to admit that, that ecology doesn't tell us that we need to do, make it look like this.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate you unpacking that point uh biodiversity you said that can be one of our big goals so now let's let's blow some minds a little bit more i'm gonna ask the question because you made it a chapter title uh are species valuable
2: yeah this is a this was the most difficult part for me in writing this book because the notion that an extinction is bad and that species are good is is so fundamental to not only my worldview, but to my personal identity. You know, this is something that's like really deep to me. And yet when I started really digging into the environmental ethics literature about the the value of biodiversity, I found myself in a confusing position. So there's more than one type of value and I, t- I unpack them in the book, But but very briefly you can divide value up into the sort of categories, the instrumental value, the value that something has because you can use it. And then there's the sort of intrinsic value. And that's a value it has just for being itself. And I think most people who care about the environment are interested in that intrinsic value. Um, they are, you know, even kind of sometimes contemptuous of people who value nature because you could chop it down or you can eat it or you can hunt it or you can but at the same time, you know, uh, the the values like, um, wetlands filtering water or, um, providing uh, buff, you know, mangrove swamps, providing buffers for storm surges, like these are not, these are not things that, these are definitely things we should pay attention to and protect. This kind of instrumental value can be substantial, but most people's heart is really in the intrinsic value half of that equation. And that's where my heart was as well. Um, but then you get into complicated ethical questions like is it still intrinsically valuable if there's nobody around that values it intrinsically is it somehow a sort of a metaphysical property that it, that exists in the biodiversity itself or is it because there's lots of people and lots of non-human sentient creatures that like biodiversity that it's valuable so that is a tricky one and i Once you get to this kind of, once you sort of say, well, it doesn't even matter if there are people or beavers or bears around to enjoy it or to love it, nature, quote unquote, or or the the natural world or the non-human world is still valuable. Diversity is still valuable, even if there's no one to value it. And even if nobody uses it for anything, it's just valuable because it is like, I believe that, but I I don't feel like the people who have tried to prove it have proven it in a kind of a scientific way, you know? Um, and, and it makes it trickier because species seem like the real things in the universe. And I think they are real things in the universe. Matt Barker, if you're listening to this at Concordia university, um, this is what he studies. We've had lots of conversations about it, but, um, uh, I, but species are fuzzy, right? So some, some people will say, oh, these two things are the same species. And other people might say, oh no, they're just subspecies of the same, of the same species. There's a lot of disagreement and there's no actual scientific test that you can do to say, are these two things part of the same species or are they a separate species? It has to be, in the end, it's a human categorization. It's a human judgment call because that's not how evolution works. Evolution doesn't make neat categories. It makes blurry categories. So, uh, yeah. So should we, you know, if we're just like, well, should we uproot this forest of rare orchids? They might be a species or they might only be a subspecies. That seems like an academic point. Like, no, don't uproot the forest of rare orchids. My goodness, keep it. But when you start killing animals to save the rare orchids and the animals suffer when they die, then I think, oh, okay, now... Now we're asking to do some kind of ethical trade-off here between suffering and biodiversity. And so now I feel like we need to really prove that this biodiversity is valuable. And I think that's where it gets harder because what if the orchids are very similar to another kind of orchid that's incredibly common all over the country? And in order to save this very, very similar but very slightly different orchid, we have to kill like a million cats with poison that takes a week to kill them. Now I'm not so sure, right? Like now I'm a little nervous. So I think that what I really I'm not I don't give answers to these questions to these kind of, I give answers to some questions, right? Like I have a chapter about zoos and I'm like no, some of the stuff they do in zoos is not okay. But in this case, I don't think that I can give answers because the I think it has to be a case by case ethical decision making process. Um, What I'm really calling for is just for people to realize the ethical complexity here and to kind of go through that process rather than just being like, yep, it says on this paper that this is a subspecies. So let's go ahead and slaughter these millions of cats. Yeah,
1: you do open up a lot of conversation, but you start with kind of people's baseline for what they might be valuing or the typical way to value, which comes, which has essentially a number value. And you talk about kind of, in uh, not in this chapter per, te- per, per se in terms of invasives, maybe a little bit, but you talk about more endangered species and, and why they might become more valuable based on kind of the the equation that goes along with it. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you shifted uh, and you talked about it just a bit ago, but talk about the baseline of, of how most folks are considering that there's a, there's a higher value for something endangered based on this kind of equation.
2: So people in the conservation world are mostly interested in keeping the kinds of life that exist flourishing. Um, they are not interested in the individual, the welfare of the individuals that make up those populations. Um, and well, I mean, they might as, as individual people be interested in animal welfare, but as conservationists, that's just not part of the, um, part of the field, part of the discipline. Animal welfare is, is not really part of the discipline. So, um, you know, so for a conservationist that's worried about extinction, a really common species, an individual of a really common species is not worth very much. The, but an individual of a very rare species is worth a lot more because you need that individual to be in the breeding population. You need it to be, um, you needed to be there to help the whole population persist. So actually one thing that is interesting About This valuation system is that it does mean that once an individual animal, for example, is no longer breeding anymore, it it becomes essentially useless from the conservationist point of view, because it's no longer going to contribute anything to future generations, which is why you get things like this, the Cecil, the lion controversy, right? because there's a whole other group of humans out there that don't think about primarily about species and populations and extinctions. Their primary focus is about the happiness of individual animals. And so Cecil, the lion was a big old lion, um, that was killed in a, in a hunt that was, I think there was some dubiousness about the, where it was like, whether it was in the right place or whatever, but it was within the framework of conservation hunting in Africa, which is, you know, an ongoing practice in which, in which, a sort of what conservationists consider to be sustainable numbers of animals are hunted at high dollar prices. And some of that money goes to conservation. Um, so people who care mostly about the happiness of individual animals were horrified that this big, beautiful old lion was shot, but conservationists really, I mean, people who are mostly oriented towards the conservation perspective really didn't care because he was no longer breeding. He was done. He'd been ousted from his, his, uh, his, his pride. And he was like, at that point, essentially surplus to requirements. So I think that a case like that shows how different these two different ways of thinking are when it comes to these kinds of, these kinds of ethical decision-making conundrums. And what I wanted to do in the book was help people who, who care about both of these things, who care about extinctions and they care about the happiness of individual animals. Like how the heck do you, do you live that life? Like what, how, how, what does that look like? Can you, can you have both of those things at the same time?
1: And one thing you start to unpack and move towards is the notion of compassionate conservation and you kind of detail your experiences and your time spent uh, in Australia. And as we're coming to a close, I've got a couple more questions, but if we can briefly, can you talk about your experience working alongside um in Australia, folks focused on compassionate conservation, and a little bit about that that case study and the dog fence, and uh, another kind of, in my experience, kind of heart wrenching story.
2: Yeah, so Australia is a. a I end up g- going to Australia twice for this book because it's a place where a lot of these ethical conundrums are really playing out. Because one of the dominant for drivers of extinction in Australia is introduced predators, cats and foxes, um, and rats too, but cats and foxes are really the focus. Um, and they also, so they do a ton of killing there, conservation killing. They also do a lot of killing of exotic or introduced species like horses and donkeys and camels. Um, and they also kill dingoes, which are sort of introduced, but they were introduced like 3000 years ago. So they're also kind of native. It's a very much a gray area. So there's just a lot of killing of animals there, and so it just seemed like a place where I, I needed to go to understand some of these questions. And I spent some time with a group of compassionate conservationists. That's this term they've invented, and they're trying to figure out how you save species without doing without killing anybody, without killing any animals. And it's it's it, it was fascinating to 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 hang out with them to to see the world through their worldview and to kind of go through all these hypothetical examples around the campfire with them. I do think that like. Um, there are places where I, 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 there are places where I disagree with them. This notion that there are, are never acceptable, there's never an acceptable way or time to kill an animal to achieve other goals. I think that's, I think that I do think that I'm willing to kill animals sometimes to achieve certain goals, like saving a species. Um, however, I have a lot of respect for, for, for the, for their passion, for their compassion and for, the attention that they've brought to how easily the conservation community will go to killing. Um, you know, I, while I still think that killing might be part of a toolbox, I think that that sort of being like, okay, there's a problem. Let's get out the poison. Let's get out the trap. Let's get out the guns. Like I do think that people go to it very quickly. And I also think that conservation doesn't necessarily process it psychologically very well in terms of the sort of grief or the kind of heaviness that comes with killing that many animals. And as we
1: as we transition, one other thing you point to is kind of a, what's going on there is that there's some some hindsight that's that's lost in the transition of governments and 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 politics, where kind of the measurements of whether or not these these killings are successful and actually create or accomplish anything kind of is gets lost. There's not really a, a good tracking system at play, and and that's one of the arguments that's made in that case. Um, and so as we as we transition out, I'm gonna we ask a, a very typical last question. Uh, in this case, I'm gonna reframe it for you, and give us a one minute solution to kind of how can we be good humans in a non-human world.
2: Great. So I think this the secret to trying to achieve this is first of all realizing that you're never going to be perfect. <laughs> like, there's in some of these questions, like, should you kill a bunch of cats to save a rare native species? There isn't an answer that doesn't involve um, some kind of painful action that you're going to feel that you're going to feel bad about. Um, if you decide to do the killing, there's some grief that goes along with that. And if you decide not to do the killing and the animal goes extinct, there's some grief that goes along with that. So um, philosophers call this moral residue the sort of the bad stuff that you have to do because it's the least bad option that you could come up with. So I think the first thing to know is that there's no way to get through this life without some moral residue. Like we're all, we all have to make decisions about what to do, what to eat, where to put our money, how to live our lives. And there's moral residue attached to all of those decisions. Um, There's no way to, to not impact other species as we move through our lives we are ecological beings, we are animals, and everything we do does impact the other parts of the food web. So I think the best that we can do is to try to be thoughtful about our decisions, to try to keep the autonomy of individual non-humans in mind as we make our decisions, to try to protect the biodiversity of life, And to try to balance all these things with humility, knowing that we're not always going to make the right decision. We're not always going to um, achieve our goals. And sometimes we're going to mess up. But I think we have to just do the best we can, knowing that the best is never going to be good enough.
1: Well, I really am thankful, Emma, that you put your wrestling into words and on paper. And thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's been a pleasure.